Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, is it time for a change on antitrust? So, Richard, uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota former student of yours, we should note, just so you can have some culpability here, has proposed a revision of how federal antitrust law would work. And this occurs, obviously, in the shadow of this growing anxiety about the big tech companies and whether they've been able to claim too much market power. And we can get to all that in a moment, but here's where I think we should start. Can you give us, in broad brushstrokes, a, a sense of the current status quo on antitrust, when can the federal government intervene in proposed mergers and acquisitions, and on what grounds? Good. Well, I think the first thing to note is that there are two basic statutes here on liability, and there's an institutional arrangement. The first of the antitrust laws was the Sherman Act passed in uh, 1890. Uh, this was the same Sherman who wanted a protective tariff. And what he did was to say that any contract in restraint of trade is essentially per se illegal, as is any attempt at monopolization. And this was originally aimed at dealing with cartels that could raise prices and it was also aimed at mergers, which could do the same thing. The difference between a cartel and a merger, roughly speaking, is it's harder to find efficiency justifications for market divisions and price fixes than it is for mergers, because it's generally widely agreed that mergers do have the possibility of creating efficiency gains. And as I mentioned in my Hoover column, Oliver Williamson had a very simple graph illustrating how this trade-off worked back in 1968. Uh, and you know that the efficiency gains are almost always going to be there, and you're kind of uncertain as to how big the companies are when it comes to the uh, essentially monopolization losses. So the presumption tended to be against trying to go after mergers unless they were two very big companies measured by what we call the Herfindahl Index, which is a way of trying to figure out how much concentration rests in the first three or four major firms. Uh, back in 1914, it was generally thought that the Sherman Act was not quite strong enough, and so we passed the Clayton Act. And what it did with respect to these mergers is it said that the United States now had the power to limit mergers that substantially threaten competition or tend to monopoly. And the early cases under this statute were generally thought to be kind of judicial determinations. But institutionally now, the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act uh, essentially says there's now a certain kind of process which you use to review the way these mergers are worked because their global implications are so great that it seems odd to have a particular plaintiff talk about this merger. And under the current rule, what happens is substantially is a serious barrier. You look not only at one or two markets, you look at all markets by product and geography. If there's a subdivision which seems to have high concentration between the two rival firms, there are going to be divestments of something ordered in order to ease it. And so these things start to go forward. The basic rule of thumb that you have is it's only two big companies that seem to attract this. And generally, the sort of the rule of thumb is if you've got five big companies merging into four, nobody cares. Three merging into two, everybody cares. Obviously, a two into one is a 
as an absolute simple case, and the kind of the maybe yes, maybe no is four into three. Uh, what happens with the tech companies is they work under a very different principle. The charges made by Klobuchar and by noted antitrust scholars like my colleague Scott Hempel, um, David um, Malamud uh, in Stanford and Tim Wu at Columbia is that taking over nascent companies, which are very strong, um, even if you get uh, approval from the FTC, means that you are going to prevent the new giants from coming up. And so, therefore, what we have to do is to extend the scope of the Clayton Act in order to cover these, what they now call nascent mergers. And Amy Klobuchar, heavily influenced by this particular literature, uh, wants to essentially allow these things to be taken into account seriously and to reverse the burden of proof. So now it is going to be upon the companies that want to merge to prove that they don't have even a very small effect on competition. It's also the case, and I'll just stop here, on this statute is they're not only looking at horizontal mergers, they're looking at vertical mergers, that is, two companies at different stages in the chain of production as having potential monopoly effects and even conglomerate mergers where two unrelated firms work. The conglomerate issue is not particularly important because very few of those happen, but the vertical thing, there used to be a strong presumption in favor, and now it's going to be reversed. So uh, this is a proposed change, which is pretty darn important, and the question, I suppose, is how does this tie into the modern tech revolution and everything else? And to that point, Richard, one of Senator Klobuchar's arguments here is that the laws need to be, this is a quote, as sophisticated as the companies they're trying to regulate. That is not unique to her. That is a view you hear a lot regarding lots of forms of regulation beyond antitrust, that the economy has grown so sophisticated, so intricate, so complicated, that you simply cannot apply existing standards to newfangled businesses of a kind that were never anticipated at the time that most of these laws were written. Now, the the obvious cognate of that, it would seem, is that in, in that view, you basically have to be writing new regulations all the time, because as long as the economy is innovating, the law has to keep up with it. it is that the right way to think about these sorts of issues? Well, I think the argument about complexity is always overrated if you're trying to say that it goes on an elaborate temporal grid. There may be more companies doing more things, but that, oddly enough, doesn't make the situation more dangerous. New entry means that there's less likelihood to have monopoly and makes things easier. If you go back and you look at Section 7 of the Clayton Act, people were well aware of the problems that you have here, because if you want to get two firms together, you could have a merger of equals, you could have one firm taking another. You could have an acquisition of assets. You could have an acquisition of shares and form a subsidiary which you then liquidate into the parent. All of these things were well known. And what they did under Section 7 was to essentially say that the same magnifying glass about competitive restrictions applied to them all. So it wasn't as though there was a conscious hole in the earlier statutes. The issue is what you think about the nascent competition. And on this point, of course, there's an opposite side to this. And, and let me sort of mention what I think to be some of the arguments. One is that, you know, just who are going to be these winners? And it's very, very difficult to turn out. So you may decide that somebody can't take over a small company, and that small company doesn't get the cash infusions it needs. Instead of blossoming into another behemoth, oh, what happens is it goes out of business. If you then take the next step, if you know that you cannot sell yourself to one of the four or five major tech companies or major companies in any of the other industry, well, now the only way that you can sort of realize it is to be taken over by a small firm or to go public. Small 
small firms may not have the expertise or the capital to do it. And what I think is really important is it's much more difficult today for small companies to go public because of the hurdles that you have to run in order to meet the requirements of the securities law. So the way I would want to do this is not to tighten up the antitrust regulation. I want to loosen up some of the securities legislation so it's easier for small firms to start to go public and get more character. And at that particular point, you would then start to see fewer of these acquisitions. You'd have less of these problems. So there are two ways to attack this, and I think they're picking the wrong one. And the other thing that you have to worry about is the post-hope prop to hope. You have a situation where you take over something like YouTube and it becomes a behemoth after, I guess, it's Google who owns it. But if you left it on its own devices, uh, you're not going to get the synergies. And it may well be that they will not get the financial back and they won't get the technical expertise. Uh, so the whole efficiency side of this arrangement is still there. And we have no idea if we didn't uh, take these companies over, whether they would be successful, whether they would be failures. And so you're, you're playing a very risky game uh, when you're trying to do this. And so I think, in effect, you want to encourage new entries, but essentially put these things through the standard antitrust grid. And remember, all the acquisitions that were made by Google and by Facebook and so forth did receive antitrust review through a systematic process. And so you have the added problem is, are you going to undo things for which there had been a formal approval? And I think uh, Klobuchar's position is yes. She says, you know, Facebook is on the table. I think it's really on the operating table, and there may be a guillotine hanging over its head. But you still have to then ask the question, what good are you going to do in the market space having to deal with antitrust? Put privacy aside, because that's not the issue here if you break them in two. Richard, one of the issues that always gets drug into these debates goes beyond these companies as economic actors and also contemplates them as political actors. And the argument here is that if you let companies grow unchecked, some of them will become massive. And part of the problem with them becoming massive is that they will come to wield disproportionate power in American politics, that they will, in, in the most pessimistic version of this story, become almost like states unto themselves. But you, in the piece you wrote about this for Defining Ideas this week, say that, this is a quote, strong economic concentration does not easily translate into political power. That probably sounds counterintuitive to many of our listeners. Ex explain what you mean by that. Well, I'll start with an article and then a book written by my friend, uh, Fred McChesney, who died a few years ago. And he entitled his book, Money for Nothing. And what he said is, uh, you have to understand this is a two-way process. You as a very big organized firm can try and hit very hard on your regulators to make them ease up and make your life easier. But at the same time, being very large and concentrated and having a very large amount of wealth means that you could become the target of regulation. And he talked about something that I mentioned in my Hoover piece called the Milka Bill. And what you do is you go to one of these large companies and say, you know what, we're going to impose a tax upon you uh, because you may have a lot of shares, but we've got a lot of votes unless you decide to support this, that, or the other thing or give this kind of a concession. Uh, so it turns out that these power relationships are much more difficult to understand. Then, of course, it's also clear that as a different point is that trying to figure out how money translates itself into electoral power is extremely difficult to understand. Um, so if you start looking at general elections, having a huge amount of money to spend on a political candidate doesn't give you the kind of political power that you want. Uh, you're a company which specializes in widgets, and what you could do is you could decide to help support a president or a senator or a member of the House of Representatives, uh, but they 
only spend 2% of their time on your issue. Uh, so if you decide that you're going to back candidate X and thinking that they're going to help you on this one issue, there are all sorts of other things out there and you've got very exposed flanks and they may be against you on one of these other issues. And so if you start going back and looking at the way things organize in Citizens United, where the question was whether or not you're going to sort of allow more or less unlimited spending by corporations protected by a First Amendment rights, it's important to remember who appeared at the show. It was the American Federation of Labor and the CIO, and it was the Chamber of Commerce. Individual companies don't do this, because if you're big, it's not only that they're milker bills, I wish I'd put this in the column, but think of what's going to happen if your customers don't like what you want to say. Uh, so you run a fancy store like Whole Foods, and you announce that you're a libertarian against Obamacare, uh, a consumer boycott can be organized instantaneously against you by irate customers who really don't like the way in which you go. And so what has happened, in fact, is if you look at the world of political contributions, large corporations, uh, for the most part, stay away uh, from making these supports for political influence. What do they do? Well, essentially, it doesn't matter where you look or what you see. Uh, what you see is all these corporations sounding a progressive line. So all of a sudden, they're not interested in shareholder protections. They're interested in stakeholder protection. And what they want to do is have massive affirmative action and diversity and inclusion programs because they fear the wrath of the progressive who may call them out. And so the idea that somehow or other these guys are going to basically be able to run the world seems to be very, very strange. And if you look at the grand political level, um, it's not as though you see rich people escaping taxes. They pay, you know, 2% of the population pays 40% of the total taxes in the United States. If you had that kind of clout, they'd be paying very little. It's just so much more complicated, so many more markets, uh, that again, the argument is in trying to regulate this through the antitrust laws, like pushing on a string, which is very long, uh, without any real fiber to it. What you have to do is to look at other markets and see what you want to do, whether it's campaign financing on the one hand, lobbying, or indeed substantive law. So years ago, when I had to write about some of this stuff on campaign financing, I said the only cure that's going to work is not to try to regulate the financing. What you have to do is to figure out how it is that the guys in Congress don't have anything that they can sell or dispense by way of favor. And the only way you could do that is to have a much stronger regime of property rights in which zoning boards and various kinds of discretionary procedures are going to be put to one side. If there's no willingness to do that, uh, then what happens is there's a huge amount of wealth which is going to be in contestable state, and somebody somehow is going to try to get it, and somebody somehow is going to try and resist them. So this is the old rent-seeking story that goes back to the calculus of consent, and it's as true in the modern age as it is in any other. So I don't think they can handle the political direction, but what I do think they can do by stopping mergers that probably ought to be allowed to go ahead under sensible standards is they could damage the economy. You and I are recording this a few days after the Super Bowl. I mentioned that only to give context to what I'm about uh -huh. to read to you. So here, Richard, in the year of our Lord, 2021. Break up Tom uh, Brady, right? <laughs> Tom, well, Tom Brady has just appeared in his 10th Super Bowl. He appeared in his first one in 2002. Now, why am I mentioning this? John Ehrlichman, who's a host on the Canadian Bloomberg channel, pointed out on Twitter this list of some of the companies that advertised during Brady's first Super Bowl. Yeah, they're all gone. AOL. Blockbuster, Radio Shack, Circuit City, CompUSA, Sears, Hot Jobs, Yahoo, Voice Stream Wireless, 
and gateway computers. So out of business. you've already anticipated where I'm going with this. These are companies that have been greatly diminished, or in some cases don't really exist anymore, less than 20 years time. A lot of your fellow libertarians will say, you're worried about Amazon or Facebook or Twitter and their centrality to the economy, or to the culture, their market power. Pull up a chair and wait a while. Nothing lasts forever. Are, are you that sanguine about it? Well, look, there's a, there are two parts to this, and let me mention what I think they are. First of all, in terms of the question as to whether or not success today guarantees success tomorrow, uh, the answer is no. The only way a firm basically continues to survive on top is if it reinvents itself from the inside. So it, take a firm that has done very well in the last four or five years, Microsoft, which was a fall on foreign time. What you will do is you'll discover that their book of business is completely different from what it was, you know, 20 years years ago with cloud computing or whatever. And so the firms that survive, essentially those that reinvent themselves from inside. So uh, there's a famous book by about capitalism by a man named Joseph Schumpeter, and he always predicted that the firms would fail because of the indifference of their chief executives and their shareholders and their employees. Uh, that turns out to be first. And what you really understand is exactly the opposite. If you have a successful product line, it's not going to last. So you have two choices. Either you destroy your own thing and survive with the next generation or somebody else does it. And so what you do is you have to basically engage in willful destruction of your own business in order to put a new one on top of it or somebody will do it for you. So yes, I think that's very truthful. And of course, if you remember, it was AOL that gobbled up Time Warner. And then 10 years later, when they broke up, it was Time Warner that was worth something. And AOL was a useless hope. Now, why was that? Because they didn't figure out what was going to happen. Web services became free and they charged for too long. And this thing just goes on and on like this. Now, what's the downside on this. Well, uh, the other day, I'm going to plug uh, on the Federal Society side, side uh, Josh Wright and I had a discussion about the antitrust implications um, in this business, uh, uh, also in connection with free speech. And, you know, his attitude about the regulation is one that I largely endorse, which is leave it to the market. Although, as you know, I basically put forward the model that you really want to have some form of non-discrimination when it comes to content and politics, because you think of them as a common carry. Getting the institutional arrangements to putting a sensible set of prohibitions in place is very formidable. And so this may be a thought exercise trying to tell companies the way in which they want to think about this thing and structure their own affairs so that they don't stop anybody who disagrees with Mr. Fauci or the WHO or anything on the port. Now, the thing that bothered both of us is if you're talking about a presidential election and you think that these companies have power, as they do, you're not interested in the long haul. You're interested in the next three months. And so what's the likelihood there's going to be a dramatic entry uh, between, say, September 1st and November in that industry? Well, we saw that there were a couple of conservative stations that tried to come up, Gab, I think, and Parler and so forth. And then they were shut down uh, by a higher level because they couldn't get their apps online. And there were all sorts of disagreements there. So the great question that you have is that the long-term economics, I think it's pretty clear, the short-term politics are much more at point. And if you go back to the old net neutrality debate, 
Uh, the thing that really grabbed most people with it is you didn't want the guy who ran the pipes to have a direct control over the content so he could exclude and foreclose his rival. And so when you had, I think, recently the Time Warner merger and so forth, what happened is those guys understood that this was a serious situation. And they said, look, anybody who wants to get our stuff, we won't cut them off. We'll agree to compulsory arbitration with respect to fees, rates, and everything else. So what they did is they got themselves a private solution, which really cut the arms out or the legs out from underneath the antitrust case. We need a little bit more savviness on the part of these companies uh, because, I mean, you know, Twitter is hopeless. Um, Zuckerberg is cagier. Uh, Google sort of goes one way or another. You never quite know who they are. Uh, none of these guys are particularly effective, and none of them are controlled by conservative. All the big money in the United States today, the really big money, the billionaires, is on the left, right? I mean, if you're a piker, you, you're chief executive officer of Exxon, you may have a net worth of $100 million. Thank you. You could have a vacation home down in the Bahamas. Uh, but these other guys have got $100 billion, and they have much more danger. So you see some strange thing, like you see Rick DeSantis saying, we're going to go after these tech monopolies, Republican from Florida. And, you know, this is not a smart idea, because the last thing we want to do is to have all these attorney generals from different states imposing taxes and restrictions on national companies. And one of the very bad features features of the Klobuchar bill is she gives state attorney generals, attorney generals and territories, two federal agencies the chance to sue. So any one of them is the squeaky wheel. It can get all the grease and destroy everything else. So the way to think about this is would Elliot Spitzer be in favor of or against this kind of legislation? Well, he'd love it because he could be the outlier and bring things down. So they really have to, I think, kind of cut this stuff back. And my attitude today is a plague on both your houses. Uh, that is the large 10 companies and the way in which they support themselves in political areas, I, I think really is deserving of some outrage. Uh, and the way in which the government is responding is too. But interestingly enough, the problem is on the speech side. It is not on the market concentration side, because one of the real differences when you get a tech company as opposed to a traditional company is price raising is not part of the situation when they're giving you the stuff away for fee, free in favor of some kind of information, which is a privacy sort of issue. So in an odd sense, I would make the other argument. The traditional antitrust law is obsolete given the way in which services are provided for today. So trying to regulate on price or anything else on mergers is essentially something which is not consistent with modern times. That made much more sense uh, in traditional markets than it does today, or to put it another way, and I'll end on this note, uh, you start looking at the change in dynamism. It ne doesn't necessarily say because the world is more complex, you need more antitrust. It may say, mm, the world is really complex, we need a little bit less antitrust stuff, and have to focus on these other viewpoint discrimination issues. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.